without a sermon application, uh, there really is no sermon. Mm. Because the Bible is written to not only answer the what question, that is information, but the so what question, that is application, and the now what question, that is motivation. Welcome to Monday Morning Preacher, the podcast of PreachingToday.com. I'm your host, Kevin Miller, and I am honored today, we are honored today to have as our guest, Dr. Robert Smith, Jr. Welcome, Dr. Smith. Thank you, Brother Kelvin. It's a delight to represent Jesus. Well, we actually met each other many years ago at Beeson Divinity School briefly, and I have followed you from afar and so appreciated your ministry. For our guests, I'll just say that you hold the Charles T. Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity there at Beeson, and you teach preaching, praise the Lord. Your book, Doctrine That Dances, was actually selected by us as our our book of the year when it came out, I guess, back about 10 years ago. You know, uh, Dr. Smith, you have just completed doing something that I know no one else who has done, which is record the Bible from Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation. What was that like for you? Well, Isaiah 34, 16 says, seek ye the book of the Lord and read. That's what I did. I read, and uh, instead of just reading, it read me. And so I was consumed by it. I enjoyed it. It was not anything I endured. Yes, there were names, particularly in First Chronicles, chapters 1 through 9 or 10, that were incredibly uh, challenging. Uh-huh. Since the Lord wrote it. And the Lord gave me the interpretation and, and helped me with the punctuation. And so in, in uh, 55 years of trying to preach, it was the most challenging and I think the most enjoyable thing I've ever, ever participated in. That's astonishing. And, and as someone who's devoted you know, his, his whole life to preaching God's word, how did God meet you just in, in the very art and act of, of speaking it? The Word began to speak to my life, words I had read before, the words were turned into ink, and Mm -hmm. the ink was turned into blood, my blood. So it became uh, really an incarnational experience. It was not something I was doing for a listing audience, it was something that was being done to me. And so it it was exegetically experiential, it really, really was. Wow. Now, for our listeners who, who would want to listen to the finished version of the Bible you recorded, when will that be available? I understand that they want to have it available January 2022. That's my understanding. Okay. And the group you worked with on that was who? Crossway Publishers. Wonderful. We'll look forward to listening to the scripture in your rich voice. Now, you've been teaching young preachers for 30 years at least, uh, five years, I know, at Southern Seminary in Louisville, now 25, you're in your 25th year at Beeson. As you preached uh, and taught preaching, what about sermon application do you find is challenging for your students? Oh, well, I I think without a sermon application, there really is no sermon. Mm. Because the Bible is written to not only answer the what question, that is information, but the so what question, that is application, and the now what question, that is motivation. What do I do about what is applied to my life and about what I understand? And so I I think Haddon Robinson, it's hard for me to say the late Haddon Robinson, 
because he's not late. I mean, he's more alive now than ever before. Amen. The product of eternity. But Head Robinson says that biblical preaching is the communication of an idea derived from scripture and transmitted through a grammatical, historical, and historical, grammatical, historical, and literary study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the life, personality, and experience of the preacher, and then to the hearer. But what's important, I think, for us as preachers is to allow it to apply first to our life, our personality, and our experience as preachers, and then to the hearers. We're looking at application as relates to how will it apply to someone else's life. No, as Philip Brooks says in his classic definition on preaching, that preaching is truth mediated through human personality of the preacher, and then to the hearers. So it's got to come through me. That's the inward trajectory. And then the upward or the outward trajectory to others. So that's the first thing. It has to apply to the preacher. I like to think of Acts 8, 30 and 31. Here is this Ethiopian eunuch. He's reading Isaiah 53, verses 6 and 7 and verse 8. Mm-hmm. As, as a lamb is led before the slaughter, she before she is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. When Philip takes and joins him and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I accept someone should guide me? That word guide is the same word, the same root Greek word that is found in John 16, 13, where Jesus says, when the spirit of truth has come, he will guide or he will lead you into all truth. Mm. So Mm. it's the spirit who takes and guides the application that comes to us. And then we are able by the spirit again, who inscripturated the word to help the hearer to understand, number one, what it means, what it meant in that context, and now what does it mean to us today? Because the text can never mean today what it never originally meant when it was originally. originally. Amen to that. <laughs> so um, I think it has to come through me and then go through someone else, to the hearer. It is important, I think, Kevin, to uh, not only allow, it's hard to say, but allow the spirit to apply the text to me. I think when it comes to applications in terms of my work, because I see preaching as a ministry of two hands, hands of the spirit, the hand of the preacher. And therefore, when it comes to a text like um, Mm -hmm. Luke chapter 10, verse 37, the parable of the good Samaritan, there is a definite application. And Jesus asks, who was really more neighborly? And uh, the man couldn't say Samaritan because he's Jewish. He wouldn't say that. The one who got the person out of the ditch, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Jesus says, direct application, verse 37 of Luke 10. You go and do likewise. You can't miss that. You do likewise. That's a direct application. Do what this uh, Samaritan did. But Mm -hmm. then there is an implied application. So when you read a text like um, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7, Nathan tells the story of the little ewe lamb, which is symbolical of Bathsheba, who was taken by, by David. Mm-hmm. And David says, uh, Nathan says to David, you are the man. But he never tells him what to do. After David hears the statement, you are the man, he knows what the application is. Mm-hmm. So in verse 13, because David, Nathan doesn't say, now here are three things you ought to do as a result of that. Doesn't say that. Verse 13, David says, I have sinned. 
And the application is that he writes Psalm 32 and he writes Psalm 51. So I call that mm -hmm. what Calvin calls it. He calls it the internal witness of the spirit, which we leave out too often. It is our own ingenuity. The spirit will never say anything that uh, the word does not say. And therefore, the internal witness of the spirit not only is working with the preacher as the preacher preaches, and not only is preparing the hearts for the people to hear the word, but in between the preacher and the hearer, the spirit is working. And I think that's, that's a, a place where we need to give more attention to allowing pneumatological presence in our application rather than trying to be creative all the time and cute all the time. Let the spirit also take the text and apply it to the people that we preach to. And this is, of course, much more practical and more easily done if you pastor people that you see every week and you know the needs of the congregation. Yeah, amen. I, you know, sometimes I know I'll do that where I'll say, uh, here's basically here's the what the text is saying. Now, what is God speaking to you? And I, I'll let them develop their own in application, working with prayer and listening to the Spirit of God. And uh, I find our people, you know, they listen to God. They pray. They will lean into that. So I don't always have to spell it out, like you said. There can be direct and there can be implied. That's correct. Yeah. And, and sometimes, I know you had this happen to you. At the end of the service, someone will say to you, whether you stand at the back door, you're standing up front greeting people after the service, and someone will come up to you with tears in their eyes and ask you, how did you know? And they'll tell you, how did you know this? And you didn't know. Have you been no. reading my email? No, you haven't. Only thing you can say is, this is what the Lord did. He applied this to your heart. I had no idea what was taking place. None. Yeah. And what they say is something that you either didn't say or you didn't think it was that profound. <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah. God you know. loves you. Well, yeah. That doesn't seem to be, that's not one of your big points. It's not even alliterated. <laughs> and that just absolutely just uh, touched them. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, Bonhoeffer used to say that the, the proclaimed word is the Christ walking among his congregation. And, and I just love the picture in my mind as I'm preaching that Jesus is just walking up and down the aisles of my church. And he sometimes whispers into the ear of someone and, and speaks to them what they need to hear. And so if it wasn't exactly what I was saying at the moment, that's fine with me. Right. Now, you know, in some of the younger preachers I work with and try to raise up, I do in my own local and informal ways what you do professionally there, but uh, I find they sometimes struggle a little bit sorting out the definite applications, thus saith the Lord, from the probable applications of the text to the possible applications of the text to the no way in the world is that an application of the text. And trying to sort that out is kind of an art. How do you help your students with that? I have a very high sensitivity to pneumatological presence. I don't mean a feeling. I mean mm -hmm. the spirit who inscripturated the word so that spirit and word remain inextricably connected. So I want to take a passage like, for instance, Hosea 11 and 1. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Well, that's a direct reference to the Exodus which at that particular time, Hosea 8th century BC, that's 600 years ago approximately. But then Matthew will take that same text in Matthew chapter 2, 15 and 16, when the 
the Lord sends Gabriel to tell Joseph to take Mary and um, her son Jesus, because Joseph is the guardian of Jesus, not the father of Jesus, down to Egypt, because there is one Herod the Great who seeks his life. And he quotes Hosea 11 and 1, out of Egypt have I called my son. That's 1,400 years from the time it was originally written. So what you have here is application that has a fuller sense, census planure, a fuller mm -hmm. sense of the word. But it says what it originally meant, but it has an extended application so that now it means even more because of chronological space. When it comes to students, I want them to make application based upon, number one, the text. Number two, how does the text speak to them? Number three, what is the text saying to the church today? Not just to Moses in the wilderness, but mm -hmm. what is the text saying to the church today? Mm. What is the text saying to the world around them? How does it apply to the world? It's not the text that's changing at all. It's the text that's being applied to our situation. So I want right. them to look at, I want them to look, listen to the voice of the text, the voice of the church, the voice of society, and the voice of the preacher. And put all that together as you think about it. How can I present this in an applicable way without compromising the integrity of the text? Because the text can't change. See, if anything's gonna change, the church has to change. I have to change. Society has to change. Yep. The text does not change. Forever, O oh Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's settled. You know, it's it's interesting to me as I pull off my commentaries uh, to see how different Christian traditions tend to work application. Uh, you know, your, your ancient fathers of the church, they tended to have a high social awareness, especially toward poverty and, and helping exactly. the poor. They talk about that a whole lot more than we, we tend to feel comfortable with. Exactly. And then I notice white evangelicals tend to apply to the individual much more so than to the community, whether that's the faith community or the larger social community. In, in your own background, tradition, what, what happens in the application? Where, where do you tend to look at that moment? Well, again, it, it is the refusal to separate the spiritual from the social. Hmm. It's not either or. Yeah. Both and. So, Jesus' sermon, his inaugural sermon uh, in Luke 4, Luke 4. Yep. 16 and following. The Jews were more like white evangelicals in that as long as Jesus told the story and dealt with the spiritual, it's pretty good, no problem. Explain Isaiah 61, fine. Just read it, really, just read it, it's fine. But when he started applying it and said, you know, there were a lot of Jews in uh, Israel, but the Lord sent Elijah to the widow of Zarephath, and uh, the Lord took, and because of her obedience in supplying him with the little oil and the little meal that she had for his survival, the Lord put a cornfield in her barrel and an oil well in her cruise. So that every time she dipped out some oil, God put another pint in. I dipped out a pound of meal, God another, put another pint in so that she was sustained throughout mm -hmm. the famine which lasted for three years and six months. They didn't like that. 
Mm. (laughs) Same thing happened with uh, Naaman. They have a lot of names. They have a lot of Jesus. They have a whole lot of um, lepers in Israel. Uh, But the Lord allowed Elisha to give directions to this five-star general named Naaman, the arch enemy of Israel, Syria. And he dipped seven times in the Jordan River. Seven times his skin was like that of a child. They like that. Mm-hmm. That deals with race. It deals with sociological implications. Yeah. They want to be distanced. And of course, God is not on the side of Syrians. And God certainly is not on the side of, of individuals from Zarephath. That's Gentile territory, Northwest. No, no, that's not it. And so with African-Americans, we believe that when Jesus got up, that's why you, in any black congregation, when the preacher says he died one Friday, but early one Sunday morning, he got up. They are not just thinking about got up in terms of resurrection. Yes, glorification. They think about he got up and we can get up. From in terms of sickness, we can get up from social rifts. We can get up from a lack of education. We can get up because God is interested in the whole person. He's right. not interested in getting Kelvin Miller and Robert Smith to heaven. If that was the case, once we got saved, absent from the body, present with the Lord. He cares about your family. Right. He cares about whether or not you're going to have something to eat in the morning. He cares about all of those things. And so therefore, they are put together. So when Jesus uses Luke 4, and then comes around and closes with uh, Matthew 25, people who say, well, Luke 4, that's just the spiritual, it's not the physical. But then what do you say about Matthew 25? When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. Is that spiritual? When I was naked, you didn't close me. Is that spiritual? When I was outdoors, you didn't take me in. Is that spiritual? No, that's physical. And what you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. So there's an inextricable relationship. My concern for whites and blacks is this, that whites will uh, emphasize and make it a pedestrian, a privatized matter of the spiritual only, and blacks will make it a matter of uh, the social only. No, I don't want people to socialize the gospel. I want people to gospelize the social. Let the gospel speak to the social. Don't discard and jettison the gospel so that you can deal with social matters and don't take and discard and jettison that which is social so you can just deal with the spiritual. It's both. And what God has joined together, let no one put us under. Amen to that. That's all I'll say. <laughs> Amen. May God give us the grace to do it. Uh, well, I, I know uh, my own tradition and I know we've got to grow. So thank you for that word. You know, uh, Daryl Johnson, whom you may know at Regent, uh, he, he talks uh, in his book, The Glory of Preaching, right. kind of less about application and more about what he calls invitation, almost like it, it reminds me of that phrase in the book of Revelation where God says, I've set before you an open door. I mean, and it's like, OK, I've just preached this text and now I've set before you a door that I'm inviting you to walk into the truth and the glory of this message from the Lord whether it's a challenging message like Luke 4, or it's a comforting message like maybe Isaiah 40. But how do you frame that up? I mean, when you're thinking of application, are you thinking, how do you describe it? What is going on like emotionally in terms of what you want to bring the listener into? I I like Daryl Johnson and I like his work and I like his movement 
toward more induction as application in the case you put invitation. So the Jews are dealing with, this is rather Kardokian, uh, Fred Craddock, but it is a move from the journey to the destination. Not started with the destination to the journey, but from the journey to the destination, which means that this is a serendipitous experience. As you move along in the text and in the sermon, your understanding of the text, and it is speaking to you in different intervals, so that when you get to the end, that you at the end that I originally wanted you to arrive at, I just didn't tell you up front because mm-hmm. I'm preaching inductively. I'm preaching inductively, but really what I'm doing is marrying both. So what I've done across the years, and this is my definition for expository preaching. The expository preaching is the ushering of the hearer by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, through the power of the Spirit of God. That's all I do for the purpose of transformation. I don't have a thing to do with transformation. Mm. I have to usher the hearer by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, my work's done. Because what I do then is, Mm. I've done that, I have ushered the hearer into the throne room of the Trinitarian God. My work's done. I stay outside of the door of the throne, waiting for transformation, because I can't transform anyone. Mm. But the Word can. The Word of God can, and the God of the Word can. Once that person is transformed, I become a midwife. I wait for the throne room door to open. I catch that baby. Now it is my job to move the baby from salvation to maturation. Mm. It's my job to disciple that baby. It's my job to help that baby to grow, not to transform, which is encouraging. Because you can preach for Sundays the word of God and no one responds. It's your job to transform them. Don't get down. Take and usher the, the persons by the word of God into the presence of Christ, the Son of God, by the power of the Spirit of God for the purpose of transformation. Now, transformation in terms of this invitation can be delayed. Mm-hmm. The prodigal son, and he does <laughs> not get transformed at home. He's got the right stuff in him. How do I know? Because he is in the pig pen. There's no preacher there. Nobody's passing out tracks. No choir is singing. And he comes to himself. And mm-hmm. he says, I have sinned. Where did he get that from? From his home. Somebody's been preaching to him. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He knows that. He knows more about grace than many of us do. <laughs> I want to go back and tell my father to make me one of the hard servants. On and all that's delayed. That's delayed. And sometimes, what we think is a failure, uh, the word has since the word will not go out and come back void, according to Isaiah 55 and 11. Then some of the uh, invitations we will be surprised were accepted when we get to heaven. That people mm-hmm. are transformed because we think they're transformed when they come down the aisle or whatever your tradition may be in church. Uh-uh. No, 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 that may be. But some of those take place in the pig pen. And some of those take place where all I've done is go from A to M, someone else is going from N to, to R, and someone else is going from S to Z. I plant, somebody else waters, God gives the increase. 
So I like invitation. I like invitation because it is an invitation to be transformed after we've done everything we were supposed to do to inform them, going right mm -hmm. back to that Ethiopian eunuch. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I accept someone guide me? And the Bible says in Acts 8.35, starting at that same scripture, Philip preached to him Jesus. You know what the guy did after that? He gave his own invitation for baptism. What hinders me? There's some water there. I know this is not uh, this is not your regular baptistry, and I can't wait to the first Sunday because I'm on my way back to Ethiopia. That's when you would be baptized. I can't wait. But he got baptized and he went on his way. And according to people like Justin Martyr and, and the early church fathers, that he was probably the one who planted the seed of the Coptic church in Ethiopia. Yeah. Because yeah. he started, that is, Philip started at that same scripture, Isaiah 53, 6, 7, and 8, and preached Jesus to him. Amen. I love that. You know, one time I was kind of down about uh, fruit in my own preaching ministry, and God gave me this image. You know how at the Olympic Games they run those four by 100 or four by 400 medleys? And, and God said, your sermon is lap three. I'll take the anchor lap. <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> if we're going to win this, it's because you're an awesome closer. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, you have taken us to church this morning, Dr. Smith. Would you just pray that God will favor the application work and ministry of the preachers who listen to this podcast? And we know there will be many. So uh, would you close us in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to um, converse, to talk about your word and about something we can't do, and that is preaching. Where two or three are gathered together in your name, you are one in the midst, and you have been in our midst, and we praise you for that. We pray that you would take our conversation, hallow it, bless it, and use it to encourage those who will listen to know that it is not by might, nor is it by power, but it is by your spirit, saith the Lord of hosts, that our preaching uh, will be effective. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, friends, this has uh, been a wonderful conversation with Dr. Robert Smith, the Charles Carter Baptist Chair of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School. I encourage you to get his book, Doctrine That Dances, and other books as well, and look for his audio Bible coming out with Crossway early next year. This is Kevin Miller with Monday Morning Preacher, the podcast of PreachingToday.com.